What's up, bingers? I've got a double dose of Delia for you this week. On Wednesday, you heard her talking about the new season of CounterClock. And today, I've got a special bonus for you. This is Delia's very first interview with me on Season 9 of Truth and Justice, where we dig into her background in the origin of CounterClock. Enjoy. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. It's great to meet you on Zoom. This is uh, yeah. this is this is new for me. I was I, I'm I'm learning slowly how to use you know the technology everybody else has been using forever. So the <laughs> the first uh, I don't know twelve episodes of this season I did all over the phone, and then people kept suggesting Zoom, and I thought it was too complicated. But it's neat to be able to see and and see where all of you other podcasters record your podcasts. Yeah, uh, with your background, so. I'm I'm looking at your. Is this the background for where you're at right now? Can you describe it to me? And is this where you recorded Counterclock? Yeah. So right now I'm in my home studio. So it's just my like soundproof room um, in our house. It's actually like one of our closets, but we just kind of like transformed it into like a studio. Um, I recorded season two of Counterclock, season one of Park Predators here, season one of Counterclock. Um, it was just kind of interesting because of the way, like, I, I put out the show originally on my own and then began working with Audio Chuck and, and we then re-released season one, um, back in, in, in January 2020. So it, it, I didn't record all of those episodes in here, some of them, because we remastered that season. I did additional investigation and revoiced and voiced new stuff. So it's kind of a combination of everything that's lived in here. Well, that, that's really interesting. I didn't realize. I knew that I, I thought it was odd when I was looking into your podcast and started listening to it that season one and season two came out like bang, bang, like one right after another. But you yeah. had already done season one at one point. Yeah. So so like season one, a lot of the content, I think when I initially put it out on my own, I think I had like 10 episodes or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and it got really, really popular, really big, obviously with, with community in North Carolina, but just in general podcasting true crime community. And that's when Ashley Flowers with Audio Chuck was like, Hey, this story's amazing. Let's get this out to, um, you know, more bigger audience. Cause that's what she's really part of is, is a lot of advocating and, and kind of getting stories out there that really need to be told. And so we worked together and I said, well, Hey, I'm, I'm still investigating this. Like I was putting out episodes on my own, like week to week. But I was like, I'm, this is still like, there's so much more information I have to get in here. There's updates, there's stuff happening in real time now. Um, and so basically I just, you know, we remastered it, added content, um, added new interviews. Um, so then when we re-released it under the audio Chuck umbrella is when it really got that, that I think attention it truly deserved and was able to get it to more people. Um, and so that's why those seasons came back so close together. But I mean, I'm always working on investigations, right. so, you know, when it's time to put something out, it's time to put something out kind of thing. Right. And it was so crazy when I can't, one of these days I'm going to get Ashley on the show. I had no idea 
when I started this process for this season of Truth and Justice and the upcoming true crime binge is I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really getting into all these other true crime podcasts and taking the time to listen to them. If the true crime podcast world were a mafia, Ashley Flowers would be the boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, sure. It's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think she just has a, a really great um, a really great heart for victim advocacy and telling good stories. And she she just gets really invested like I do. And I think when she heard what I was putting out, she was like, we, we should work together. And it's just it's become something really good. So. Yeah, she's incredible. I mean, her podcasts are great. And then, like I said, I keep coming across other shows that I'm listening to, and, and somehow she's attached somewhere. She's a producer, or they're part of Audio yeah. Truck. But, but anyway, I want to I want to learn about about you. So, what is, what is your background? And so, you started this podcast as an independent content creator, like like a lot of us. So, what was your background, and then how did you end up creating your first podcast? Yeah, so my background um, is I was in television broadcast news for like six years. I originally went to to college at UNC Chapel Hill. I uh, graduated in 2014, got into broadcast news, and I was I really liked being um, a general assignment reporter. I, I liked being a crime reporter. Uh, that really was is always will be a passion of mine. TV, I just felt like. It fit me. Um, I'm really personable. I really like to go into communities, meet and talk with people. So that was kind of my life. Um, and then back in beginning of end of 2017, early 2018, um, I had been doing that for a while, um, having a lot of success, really doing some some cool stories. But I, I wanted to try and transition out of that because I, I had this skill set that I thought could be really helpful in in doing bigger investigations. And so I decided, you know, let me let me do what I do best, which is investigate and 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 utilize, you know, public records databases and systems and and speak with victims and their families. People trust me. Let me try and do a podcast. I was a big fan of true crime podcasts that were out there that kind of were more of this independent person. Um, let me try, you know, sort of amateur. But I also knew that I wasn't as amateur because I I had actually been been doing this kind of work professionally, just not in the podcasting space. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of what led me led me into it. And I figured, heck, if if I can do this, you know, in, in this capacity on TV every day, why don't I do something longer form and really try and and dig into something? And so that's just kind of how it how it started. And learning podcasting was like everybody else, which is just you try and you fail and you try and you fail and. <laughs> <I> <laughs> Uh, you hope for the best. So yeah, it's funny that process. I was actually I spent an hour talking to a friend last night who's going to be starting a a true crime podcast, and it's in, they're like, well, what what advice would you give me? And it's like, well, first equipment. I have shelves yep. full of of thousands of dollars of equipment that is useless because I never instead of just getting what I needed, first kept not knowing what I needed, and so I got all those piles of stuff. And it's it's yeah that process of learning is it's so many people, whether they have a journalistic background like you or other podcasters that just have, you know, no background at all and they just decide to do it. It's it's just that learning curve doesn't seem to take long before, you know, after you get some different equipment and figure out how to work the software, then next thing you know, you're on the top of the iTunes charts. Yeah. And I think what was so crazy for me is I was coming from that TV space where like, if you look at TV news now, local media market, national, like, you do the most with as little as possible. So like there's reporters out there using their cell phones, using mm-hmm. like all these different things 
to create the product. And so I kind of came from like the bare bones to then like having, I almost, I feel like I have more time, more equipment and better things in podcasting, which is kind of weird when you think about it. But I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, initially I was recording CounterClock on two iPhones and a generation one MacBook Air computer. Like that is what was created. That show was created on and it was it was really awesome. And I, I, I used um, Resonant Recordings, the, the editing company. They're great. I've always been with them because I knew that that was a big component I wanted was that good quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the base elements of it, I was like just, you know, pulling from everywhere. So, <laughs> yeah, it's neat to listen to all the all the independent podcasts from the beginning when you, you can just hear the you can almost hear when they're getting new microphones and when they're figuring yep. out how to work in, you know, when they bring in like Resonate Recordings or someone and. And yep. you can you can watch the quality improve as it goes. I never heard heard that evolution with you because I didn't realize you had remastered everything with uh, with Ashley and Audio Chuck. Yeah, just just the season one, but a lot mm-hmm. of that audio wasn't really remastered. It was always it was always kind of what it was. Um, Resonant did a great job at editing that, but mm-hmm. season two, yeah, I mean, I was I was on that case for almost a year before we even put it out. So that was I was getting that better quality. And that's important to the listener, too. Like, I don't want every interview to be a phone interview. When I created season one, I was working full time and doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, season two was was doing it basically full time. And like for me as a journalist, like I want to interview people in person. I want right. to read their expressions. I want to see their faces. I want to know if they're uncomfortable. Um, I want to know if they're too eager. So in person's always been critical for me. But like, this you know day and age now and and when you're working full time like you can't always do that so if someone's going to call you and talk to you you know you got to record it so it's just you know it's it's compromises but now i'm like in person is my goal <laughs> yeah i'm the, i'm the same way i hate doing phone interviews and i never seem to work around now you're you're from the outer banks right yep now do you yep. still live in that area or are, the, are those trips you have to take every time you go interview people from the cases no, I don't live there anymore. So um, I moved away uh, after after graduating college. I moved to Virginia and then Virginia here to to Florida. But all my family um, is still all there. I mean, they all live on an island, so they're all uh, outer bankers for life. And you know, we moved there in in ninety seven when I was turning four. I had just turned four, so I mean, I've been there pretty much my whole life, and I go back all the time. Um, not as much this year, but <laughs> right, right, <laughs> um, as much as I can go back. Just because it is such a unique and interesting place, and obviously with doing the shows and stuff, it's become even more so interesting. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way with the interview. I'm actually taking, I don't know, hopefully not much of a risk, but I'm going to Houston next week for what's going to be our um our season ten case because I just it's been so frustrating through all this trying to do interviews over the phone and trying to track people down. It's just not the same, and so I have a pile of interviews lined up to go do in person. So. Hopefully yeah. that goes well. So, so you said when you went to college, you went to. Um, did you go for journalism? Has that always been your career path? Yeah. So, sort of. So, when I went out of high school and went to UNC Chapel Hill, I was actually going for chemistry. So, I was in the sciences. That was that was my thing. Um, about a year and a half in, I changed direct direction entirely. I was doing really well in the sciences, but. I kind of tell people, and I even told some of my professors, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should do it with your life. And that sounds like bad advice, but I think it's really good advice. Just because you have the skills and the mind to maybe do something doesn't mean that it's your passion. And so my, what my passion became was storytelling 
talking with people and telling their stories and learning facts and understanding how systems work, law enforcement systems, you know, mm-hmm. city municipal systems and stuff. So that's what I became an interest in. And, and Chapel Hill just had, I think it still is one of the top 10 journalism programs in the country. And so I just kind of dove right in and started working for papers and um, working for, I was in sports a little bit at the time, started working for sports teams. I worked for the NHL for a couple of years. And so just kind of all those experiences just got my interest and I kind of never looked back after that. That's awesome. So did you ever have like other jobs out of school? It seems like a lot of people that I speak with that went to school for journalism, like, like get in there even while they're in, still in school and then continue on. And that's all. Is that yeah. all you've ever done? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, of course I waited tables and did all that kind of stuff, you know, to right, pay right. rent. Um, um, but I worked, yeah. So I worked any opportunity I could get to work in a, a broadcasting or, um, print space, whether that be for papers, internships, um, sports teams. Uh, I worked uh, NASCAR rights, anything that was live production, get out there, talk with people, tell a story, put something together. That was any opportunity. So I did, I did tons of stuff. I worked for ACC Network, um, just, uh, you know, in trucks for games, live game events, stuff like that. So, I mean, it just was a, so many different experiences, but it all goes back to the same thing, which is can you accomplish a task? Can you put something together that people will watch and that communicates a message? Um, and, you know, all of that was part of it. So, yeah, I was super, super busy in college. I think that's what helped me land my first jobs and, you sure. know, start a career. So, Okay, so you have, you have all this background and all the, this, this skill set and this case is from your hometown. When you decided to start Counterclock on your own, and season one investigates the murder of Denise Johnson, the unsolved murder. How did how did that come to be? Was it was it you were interested in investigating this case and decided to use the podcast to do it, or did you decide to make a podcast and then choose the case? Um, it was a little bit of both simultaneously because I was like, look, if I'm going to do a podcast, I want it to be on a case that. I have some advantages too, which is somewhere where I'm from, I can utilize resources, people. So really, and again, I've told people this before, Denise's case was really just a Google search because I thought, okay, I want to do a podcast on a case in my hometown, in my area. I know the state of North Carolina. I know the systems of North Carolina. I know law enforcement in North Carolina. But I thought surely there won't be an unsolved case, you know, decades old where I'm from, or I would know about it. That was not the case. I didn't know about Denise's case um, with any background prior to looking it up. And it still is the only case on Kill Devil Hills Police Department's, like, you know, tip page unsolved. It's the only one, um, homicide. So so that right there, I was like, boom, immediately, like, I got to do something. As soon as I read a couple of sentences into the case of the fact that it's a homicide, there's arson involved. Um, she was a local, you know, all that stuff just really struck me. So it kind of all happened at, at once in that moment. So it wasn't like, I'm going to do this, um, but I don't know what the case is for sure, but I don't even know if it'll be in my hometown, like kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it, it all happened very quickly. And I mean, as soon as I read about Denise's case, I was like, this has got to be it. Like, there's so many things I feel like I can do. And that's just how it happened. All right. So, Delete, you have... This is interesting. Most people that I've brought on other content creators to talk about their podcasts, uh, we have them talk about 
a case. And so I think when I first reached out to you, I was like, we can talk about Denise's case, which is season one, or Stacy's case, which is season two. But then as you know, I'm kind of binging through your podcast as we're having these conversations, and I realized that somewhere towards the end of season two, the two cases connect together. At least they seem to be connected together. So, so let's start, if we can. Can you break down kind of the basic beats of the Denise Johnson case, which is your season one, just kind of the backbone of that case? And then Stacey Stanton's case, which is your season two case. And then we'll talk about the work you did and how they end up connecting together. Yeah, for sure. So Denise Johnson's case, Denise Johnson was 33 years old. She was murdered in July of 1997. She's brutally stabbed. um, And then her home was partially set on fire, multiple fires set inside of her home um, in Kill Devil Hills which is, if you look at the Outer Banks, it's kind of in the center of the Outer Banks. It's the most populated part of the Outer Banks. High tourism, high traffic. Um, she was from there, a uh, beautiful, beautiful woman in the prime of her life. Um, case went cold almost immediately. I mean, there was some initial suspects and then everything just sort of dissipated. And there has never been anyone named as a suspect or person of interest and no arrest ever made. Um, and that that was, you know, in 97. So if you look at and listen to season one, you get a total reinvestigation of that case on on my end and what law enforcement is now currently doing on it. Um, I talked to a lot of people that know a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of information came out that had never come out before. So that's just kind of like the nuts and bolts of of that one. OK. For Stacy's case. So season two of Counterclock was me going back to my hometown, reinvestigating an even older murder. So the murder of Stacey Stanton took place in February of 1990. And very shortly after the crime, a suspect was developed, an arrest was made, and a man named Clifton Spencer was um, essentially convicted by no contest plea bargain. Um, What my investigation found, and what is, I believe, the truth, is that Mr. Spencer is in fact not the perpetrator of Stacy's murder and that the true perpetrator of Stacy's murder is never been truly identified and so then that leads you to the question of who actually did it why was no one held accountable and as i go through that season what you learn is not only the the errors that were made in the investigation things that were never investigated you know Clifton Spencer's story alongside Stacy Stanton's story and then it kind of all comes together the way it came together for me in the investigation, which is if you look at the time frames of the two murders, very close geographical um, areas. Stacy's case happened in Manio, North Carolina, which is the island that I'm from, is very, very close to Kill Devil Hills. A lot of similar characters, a lot of similar lifestyles, a lot of similar uh, circumstances in terms of victimology, the women themselves how they were murdered, just kind of begs the question of, is there overlap? And as I did the investigations and constantly had new leads coming in on Denise's case and was actively working Stacy's case, I found that there is potentially linkage there, at least enough to investigate and for law enforcement to look at. So that's where it kind of is like, whoa, like wow factor, because two separate things that I had no idea had any uh, connection may potentially have some connection. And so 
yeah, it's pretty crazy, especially when people listen to it. Right. Well, you know, it, it's what's, what's super interesting about it is that there are enough similarities in the cases, even though they're, they're you know, they're seven years apart, but they're, you know, geographically, they're in the same area. MOs seem very similar. But of course, police never connect one to the other because in the earlier case, Clif- Clifton Spencer is is arrested, pleads no contest, and is in prison when the second case one... Case closed. Right. Case is closed. The second one happens. So, of course, they're not connected. So, I, I think that, for me, someone who works in wrongful convictions, the, the Clifton Spencer story really, really piques my interest. I know it'll pique my audience's interest a little bit. So, I think kind of the... Potentially, if they're connected, the impetus for this case, uh, for Denise's case never getting solved could go back to, you know, a, kind of an error carried through in the fact that that Clifton is potentially wrongfully convicted of of Stacey Stan's case. So can we talk a little bit about about Clifton's case? Why was he a suspect? And what was the evidence against him and why did he pl- plead no contest? Yeah, so Clifton became a suspect very quickly because Clifton was in the same bar as um the victim. Uh, but so were a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Mr. Spencer was the only African-American man in that bar that right. night in a predominantly white town. Still is a predominantly white town. He was an outsider. He was from a town right over the bridge called Columbia, which is almost to this day, 90 percent African-American. Um, so you have this this sort of schism in terms of race. It was also the community in the bar, including the victim, was a was a heavy drug user community drug users and abusers. So you have this sort of convolution of a of um, a not so great crowd, which is, you know, again, unfortunate, but that doesn't make somebody a murderer. Um, Clifton Spencer is not a murderer just because he was a, a drug user. Right. He, there really is, there is no forensic evidence linking him to the crime. There's no eyewitness evidence linking him to the crime. You have to look at the pressure that was put on him by law enforcement and investigators. Uh, they wanted a suspect. They wanted a suspect fast. They wanted someone that they could just could fill the shoes for it. And I think that's what they kind of molded um, Clifton into. Um, they didn't look in any other avenues. They didn't investigate any other suspects. They actually didn't even interview some people that could have been potential eyewitnesses. So, so you have to look at all of that. And I think that's how that case against Clifton was built. But I think the bigger part of it that people learn throughout the season is 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 race is a is a big element, and um, it became a huge element for him as he entered into okay, I've been arrested, I've been interrogated multiple times, questionable legality of those interrogations, and then the plea, bad legal representation, um, unfortunately by a, a, a an attorney who happened to be African American just wasn't a good um good attorney whether he was african american or white or whatever race that the man was not a good attorney um and so because of that you had clifton take a deal that he didn't understand um state of north carolina their their laws about how plea deals work and sentencing guidelines were were misrepresented to him and so it was just a a classic case of of I just believe wrongful conviction. I truly do. And and that's the really sad part about it is I go back to, okay, if this man didn't do it, then who did? And who got away with Stacy's murder? That's the bigger question. I think that that is haunting and always will be. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you have potentially someone who got away with murder, potentially killed someone else that we know of. And then you have you know, Clifton, who's had 30 years of his life as of now, already stolen away from him. Yeah. It, and it just seems like he was literally plucked out of a crowd because he was the one that stood out. I mean, he's, there's a, I mean were, were there any witnesses that said, oh, the two of them, that uh, Stacy and Clifton were together that night, they left together, they yeah. had an argument. It's like they reached in and found the black guy and picked, plucked him out and just started interrogating him until they bully him into a plea deal. It was, it really truly was um, that way. And I, like I, I tell other people, I have read thousands and thousands of documents on this case, transcripts, handwritten transcripts, notes and scraps of paper from police officers and, and, and other people involved in the case. I mean, I've read everything you can on this case. And it really is just that. It, it, there is not a single person that places him with the victim in any incriminating fashion. But even beyond that, because eyewitness it, it, testimony is what it is, forensic evidence, forensic evidence in a murder of, of that nature, the way Stacy was murdered, that murderer would have had forensic linkage, no doubt. And I think still probably does. It's just not Clifton Spencer. <laughs> that's well, just I, it. That's what I was going to ask. Was there any like testing done? Because surely... There's, I mean, because this murder, there was multiple stab wounds to the neck, right? It was the, the oh, cause yeah. of death there. So it was you a, have a fight. Yeah, a brutal, bloody, face-to-face, hand-to-hand fight. There, and I know it happened in 1990. DNA w- w- was kind of in its infancy, but it was around. By 90, yep. officers knew at least to collect and keep evidence like that. Has anyone ever gone back and, you know, tested for DNA under, you know, from hopefully they took scrapings under fingernails or has there ever been any testing done and compared to Clifton? Yes. So there was um, there was when it initially was back in 90, you know, they they found some cigarette butts in the apartment with one cigarette butt with Clifton's saliva on the cigarette butt. Nine others with other people's saliva. Well, they didn't identify those other salivas. They identified the one by Clifton. Well, Clifton admitted, yeah, I went into Stacy's apartment that night. I, go, I was there. I wasn't there when she was murdered, but I was there. Another eyewitness confirms that. So he's not saying I wasn't in the apartment. You know, his finger, he had a fingerprint on like a table or something. Not a bloody fingerprint, just a fingerprint. So, so yeah, there's, there's things that put him in the apartment, but there's no forensic evidence on those incriminating things, right? So the hairs found on Stacy's body in her wounds, right? Hairs don't get into wounds unless those hairs either belong to Stacy or or the killer. Well, mm-hmm. they didn't belong to Clifton. They did that test. Some of them didn't belong to Stacy. Some of them did. So so you know that there's a foreign um a foreign element there. Somebody else. So it's not Clifton. It's not you know, it's not Stacy. Right. So so yeah, there was some things done. I know in 2004 and 2005 there was additional DNA testing done. Um, to try and narrow down the scope on um, some some other parts of the hair. But again, by that point, you're talking years away from the initial crime scene preservation. So right. a lot of that evidence was not taken care of. And that's just another hurdle. I still think there's things that can be done, should be done now. But no, I mean, there's nothing, there is nothing forensically saying that Clifton did this. And then again, you add on that eyewitness testimony, no bloody clothes. I mean, this, this, the wounds on Stacy were so significant. I've seen the crime scene photographs. It was very hand to hand, very, very close. 
no way that the killer would have gotten out of there without being covered in blood and would have had to dis- discard those um those those items that they were wearing. There's just no way. And so the fact that Clifton is is clocked uh, just just shortly after this supposed window time of the murder by his friend and sleeps in his friend's recliner. There's no blood at his friend's house. There's no clothes. This is a guy who was high on drugs walking the streets. He he didn't mastermind something and re- he had nothing to change into. You know what I mean? So there's mm-hmm. just, there's so many things that, that line up that say this is, and they should have lined up back then for investigators. And and then ultimately that was his, what what the police led him into as far as his plea was, that he pled to second degree murder and said that he doesn't recall, you know, to his recollection, he doesn't remember doing this to her, but pled out because due to the drug use or whatever they, you know, they convinced him that maybe he just doesn't remember it. Yeah. So basically what it came down to is they sat him down multiple times. Again, questionable legality of any of those interrogations. None were recorded, no transcripts of, of many of them. They basically told him, you did this, right? Well, I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, but you did this. So, so it's the, the feeding of information, mm-hmm. having someone inadvertently confirm things that are untrue. So you have a lot of fabricated statements, a lot of fabricated reports about what he said, what he remembers, what he doesn't remember. And the DA says, well, we've got all of this against you. If you don't want us to seek the death penalty, then, then you'll plead to second degree murder. And he goes, his attorney says, yeah, they got you, man. They're going to they're gonna fry you, you know, is essentially. And so what is he then to do except go, okay, well, you tell me if I take this plea deal, I'll get maybe five, 10 years. You know, I, I don't want to put my family through any more heartache. Let me just, let me just do this, right? And then it, it, I didn't do it, but I'm not going to say I'm guilty, but I'll say that there may be enough evidence against me to convict me. So I'm going to to plead to no contest. So a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding of his rights, um, a lot of bad manipulation on on the state side of things that all made him go, well, yeah, I don't remember anything. And, you know, I have no evidence to the contrary. At the time, him and his attorney had no idea any of the other statements that had been taken by other eyewitnesses. So. You know, there's so many, so many things that just create this vortex of this was just systematically wrong all the way down the line. Um, and yeah, it ruined it, again, it ruined Clifton's life. But more so think about the victim and the victim's family who all of these years, right. all of those years in the 1990s and the early 2000s and even to this day say, we just don't believe this man did this. They never got justice, which is just as bad. So. That's what's really heartbreaking, I think. For sure. And then, and then, uh, you know, like we said, there's the, if there is a connection between Stacy and Denise's cases, then the fact that they let that killer, the true killer, if it was, a, if, if it was somebody else in Stacy's case, walk free, it could have been what cost Denise Johnson her life. So let's talk a little bit about Denise's case. So that one definitely piqued my interest when I started listening, which was so, you know, chronologically, they're backwards. So the 97 right. case was season one and the 90, the 1990 case was season two. So I started with season one and right away, um, I don't know if you know this, but I was a, for, I was an arson investigator oh. uh, before I was a podcaster. So as soon as I started, you know, the, your first episodes were, were hearing from, you know, the police and yeah. the, the firefighters that were on the scene. And, you know, they said they had the structure fire. They go in and find there's a body inside. And very quickly realize that this wasn't an accidental fire. Right. Yeah. The, the, the thing that really grabs people's attention about Denise's case is that, that arson component, that arson element. And I think 
from the get go. You know, anyone that has any experience in in arson investigation or any curiosity knows that that that's usually something that's that's used by a criminal to obliterate evidence, to mask something, to um, there's some there's psychological motivations to it. There's so many things, and so I think that's what really when you hear from those first responders and those initial people that are processing it, you kind of understand like where their approach was coming from. But in hindsight, you're like, oh, these were all things that shouldn't have been done. But like, you're not thinking about that in the moment. And so it helps the listener understand what contributes to cases going unsolved. And sometimes it's just the, the, the cards that you're dealt. And so, yeah, that's kind of the, the best way to explain it. Yeah, it's, it's tough. That was always, I mean, I was a firefighter too, but also an arson investigator. So a lot of, in some case, depending what shift I was on, some days I was the one in there putting the fire out and then going back in later and doing the investigation. Sometimes I was coming in to do an investigation after other crews were were fighting the fire, and it, and it it's frustrating, but it's part of the job because you know they're trying. You know, for example, like in Denise's case, if I remember correctly, you know when they found her her body, the first thing they did was get her body out of there. And it, it, there's there's a conflict between the 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 job of a firefighter and the job of an investigator because firefighters are taught if you you know. Get them out. You can't, you can't, if they're savable, you can't save them in the fire. So get them outside. And then the investigators come in and they're like, well, what'd you move her for? Because I needed her in there yep. to be able to, to really properly investigate the crime scene. So definitely, and that's a lot of the reasons why, um, you know, as you mentioned, there's different motives for fire. You know, there's, there's money, there's revenge, and then there, and there's, you know, psychological fire starters. And then there is usually the most common one is it's used, well, money is the most common one, but a close second is fire arson to conceal another crime yep. which very obviously is what was done here and and so did they did they find any forensic case because hers is one that just for 23 years it just remained completely unsolved yeah was there any forensic evidence was there any leads anything at all it seems like it just you know it's like they they investigated for what seemed like a few days and they're like oh well we got nothing and then it's just sat there yeah, I think I I truly believe that they did collect some sort of um, forensic evidence. Uh, again, from talking with people that were present at the autopsy just a couple weeks ago, the state of North Carolina, after almost two and a half years, sent me the full autopsy report for Denise Johnson. I've been fighting for that for years. Got that. Uh, I haven't put out too much information of what's in that, but there are a lot of things in there that tell me Kill Devil Hills PD had at one point, may still have, definitive forensic evidence that could be perpetrator evidence uh, or perpetrator DNA. Should I clarify that? So I think there is. To my knowledge, had they tested anything based on interviews with the family, um, interviews with other professionals? No, I don't think they have. And I, I think they're caught between the dilemma of the little bit that we have do we want to test and we'd use it all up? Right. And what if we don't get any, get any, get anything from it? Then we've used it all up. Definitely understandable. But I will say there is amazing labs in this country, ones I have recommended that will do an excellent job and, and they don't have to consume your whole sample. Sometimes that's the case, but sometimes it's not. If you're just trying to get a phenotype or you're, or you're just trying to eliminate or, or something like that. There are so many cool things that I just think law enforcement agencies maybe aren't as familiar with that if they sought that, they would realize, oh, okay, 
let's try and do this and see how far we get and just kind of, you know, take it one step at a time. So to my knowledge, no, I don't think there's been any suspect DNA identification testing done on Denise's case. And that's a shame because I think they do. I mean, they took, so supposedly took fingernail clippings. Um, Again, another bloody crime scene, a stabbing. Typically perpetrators cut themselves. A lot of blood. I mean, is there, is there their blood DNA there? Is there any other forensic DNA that could link them? And I I think the answer is potentially yes. Um, They did collect a lot of things from that crime scene. Nothing's led anywhere yet, but I I think there's a lot of potential for Denise's case to be solved. Uh, Law enforcement experts and, and DNA experts I've talked to say her case is absolutely solvable. Just have to have the, the right desire and the right elements come together. And I think that's what the podcast was able to kind of uh, catapult, which is a desire to see some resolution, a desire to get out there and reinvestigate. And that was really cool. Right. I mean, you really breathed new life into the case um, because, you know, ultimately you had the Dare County DA, Andrew Womble, finally came to you and, and, and kind of thanked you for, for bringing it to light and seems now to be more determined to try to find some resolution in the case. Yeah, I think the district attorney's office in Dare County really uh, was rattled in a good way to get this case off the ground. I think uh, law enforcement in Kill Devil Hills, law enforcement in Dare County was really rattled to, to, to kind of reinvestigate this. I know personally right now in real time that there are things happening and they are following leads even to this day that I have put forward. And that's really encouraging because I think that's what this is all about. Is not just telling a story. Is 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 trying to make a difference and get people to care. Um, and if it's gonna gotta be pushy, then so be it. Uh, but I think that's the whole point, and that's really encouraging. And um, that comes from from my work, uh, people participating with me, people being willing to come forward and talk, um, and then listeners just getting the word out amidst all that stuff together. Right. It's amazing what just a little bit of pressure can do to. To get things moving, and and that's fantastic. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is, before I let you go, is um, you know some of the leads you developed. So you were able to make some connections or potential connections between the two cases, and you talk you talk about a guy named Mike and a lady named Patty that that together may have been connected to both cases. Can you just give a real not don't go into all the details because people can go to the podcast and listen to all the details. But give sure. kind of a brief breakdown of like like who these people are and how they might be connected to both cases. Yeah, so Mike Brandon, he is deceased now, but he was the uh, abusive boyfriend of Stacey Stanton in 1990. He then went on to marry and have a child with a woman named Patty Rowe. They were key witnesses in the Stacey Stanton case, not that they were spoken to like they should have been by law enforcement or questions like they should have been by law enforcement, but they were an integral part and are an integral part to Stacey and Clifton's story in, in that case. They remained those persons of interest uh, by their own statements and through investigative avenues well into the 2000s. Mike Brandon self-confessed to multiple people to having been uh, the killer uh, of Stacy. Not only that, according to other witnesses, he was the self-confessed murderer of Denise Johnson in 1997. And other, other statements from witnesses um, and investigative avenues support that. So 
then that's kind of where the overlap, you have to kind of look at it and go, whoa, 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 what does this mean? So uh, with that, these individuals um, local to the Outer Banks could have known, did know both victims, could have been in the same geographic areas, even on the same streets at the time that these murders occurred, which I think is almost unfathomable when you when you think about cold case homicides. Right. Putting people in general time frames and this and that, but being able to pinpoint them to a street and their their time in and out of prison to a date, I mean, that's very, very worth looking at. Um, and that's just what I raise in, in the storyline. And I think um, those individuals, when you listen to the show, you'll you'll understand when you take that 30,000 foot view of, okay, okay, we're not saying they did anything, but we're saying you got to look at it, right? I mean, you have to. Right. So that's my suggestion to law enforcement um, is to say, hey, look, I mean, what does it hurt, right? What does it hurt? They, they've had to have their DNA submitted for Stacy's case. We know it's in systems. Um, you know, you have the right to go and ask for it. So, you know, there's a lot of things there I think could be could be beneficial. But yeah, the, there are certain characters that I think are absolutely integral to both of the stories that, you know, you can't ignore. You just can't. No, and you did a fantastic job of breaking down that that connection there where, you know, you have, you know, the, the stories that, that Mike allegedly told people in jail and then you and then documented. Yeah. These are not rumors. These are in affidavits. Like that's right. what's crazy. <laughs> right. And then you and then you go through and the what, what I found interesting because you know the guy's in and out of jail and you go through and look at like, okay, where, you know, was he out during this crime and was he out during this crime? And it happened to be pretty narrow windows when he wasn't in jail and it lines up oh, with yeah. both of them and where he was at and everything. Who he was talking to, all of that. Yeah, yeah, and and so you you did an amazing job. It was a great piece of investigative work in general, not to mention investigative journalism. The way you produced it. The last question is: Is is this going to keep going? Is there going to be a season three of Counterclock? There will be a season three of Counterclock. I won't say um, where the case is or what it's on, but yeah, I am already a year into season three of Counterclock. And I, I will say, and I've said this before in, uh, with everyone, I am always working Denise's case. Um, always. I mean, I got a call right day before Christmas um, with tips and information and stuff. So I'll always be working at how that will flesh out in any future episodes. Again, because I'm trying to sort of uh, surf the, 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 the wave of what's happening with current law enforcement activity and not getting in their way and not inhibiting their work um, or hindering their work. Um, I have to be kind of careful at this point now, but in Stacy's case and, and Clifton's story, I'll always, always want to know. I feel like I came to kind of a definitive conclusion, at least in terms of as far mm -hmm. as my investigation could go. I mean, I can't, build my own DNA lab and start doing DNA right, testing. Right, right, right. If I could, I would. Um, uh, so there's a certain, you know, point that I, a line there that I kind of couldn't cross. But yeah, I think season three is going to be, it's, this, it's, it's the same thing that I do, like that sort of detail, investigative stuff, the breaking down of information and looking at threads of information. It's the same thing I, in all the shows. And I think that's what is important work to do. So yeah, there is a season three, but uh, I won't say what on yet. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to it. And and ladies and gentlemen, 
the podcast is Counterclock. Her name is Delia D'Ambra. Highly recommend checking it out. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.